All right, well, we're in the final section about understanding current hermeneutical trends in the midst of daily ministry. And, and this is just kind of, uh, you know, may, I'll try to think about how we can cast this so that it's, it's meaningful. It's not just some academic discussion. I had a student come to me recently. He said, I bought this commentary on sale. And I'm reading it. It's a commentary on Jonah. And uh, guys just, it, you know, it was a hermeneutics class. He's like, he's just interpreting the whole book of Jonah allegorically. He's like kind of shocked. He's like, what in the world? What's going on? Like, I, I bought this because it's in Lifeway. It was on sale. I thought it was a good commentary for help, helping me understand Jonah. But it's just a big allegorical exegesis of the text. I mean, it's like what you're talking about people did in second second century and third century. And I looked at it. And it was the new Brazos theological commentary on the uh, on the um, on the Bible, and uh, the Brazos theological commentary on the Bible is part of an expression of the theological interpretation of Scripture movement. So, if you need to, in other words, there are resources that are, and more of these are coming out. There's the Fortress Belief Commentary. There are all these commentary series that are coming out now that are billing themselves as theological commentary, theological interpretation. <laughs> Theological interpretation of the Bible, theological interpretation of Scripture, theological interpretation movement. They're all this kind of, of, and it's a very amorphous movement. It's very diverse. You've got Roman Catholics, you've got liberal Protestants, you've got evangelical Protestants, and you've got all of them claiming this title. So it's kind of confusing. In fact, I found that I, I actually had to write a section of my book to try to understand this movement. Like, I was like, I've got to re, I've got to understand this is a big deal. You know, at, at this professional society meetings every year, that's, that's where the buzz is, theological interpretation. Everyone's jumping on board that, the, the doctoral seminar, they're doing their, their section that, that semester. What is theological interpretation? What's everybody, what's the buzz about? What are all the writings? And how it's gonna, how it's gonna filter down to the church, right? Here's, here's the church from the academy, is it's gonna filter down through through the commentaries and through the works that are being written, and people are going to pick them up, and they're going to there's going to be a difference. There are differences in these commentaries that are being written than than the traditional commentaries. So understanding what is driving that, what is that movement, and and what are the characteristics of it. Okay, so we'll just go through through a few characteristics of it. Um, number one, I think, is is disillusionment. Okay, number one is di- the, the people who are, who are engaging in TIS, TIS is the shorthand for Theological Interpretation of Scripture Movement. Theological Interpretation of Scripture is, is their disillusionment with what went before. So in other words, one of the main things of TIS is we're not happy with the way things are now. Okay, and we're, we want to do something different. So they say, you know, the traditional historical critical method where you carefully analytically analyze the text talk about its sources and all that it's that they're like that's bankrupt there are a lot of how has this helped the church look at all these commentaries that have been written without any concern for transforming people and for the 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 church so that in in some sense that's good you know but there but 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 so it's a rejection of academic study for the sake of academia it's writing for the church it's disillusionment with the with saying look at all these secular look at all these schools with bible departments who cares what they're irrelevant what good have they done and so they say that in the past theology has has not done enough by leaving theology purely in the cerebral realm right and has not been faithful to the nature of scripture by by not reading it as followers of christ now we're, we hear this and we're like yeah 
That's, uh, we're, we're about that. That's good. But you have to remember, people who are saying this are not just people who share our views, but also Roman Catholics and liberal Protestants. Liberal Protestants are like, we're, we basically, we've made ourselves irrelevant. We need to read the Bible for the church. But reading the Bible for the church for them does not necessarily mean the same thing that we do in terms of submission to its authority and understanding its message. But there's a recognition that just reading the Bible in, a ca- in the academy has not, has not been useful just leaving it in the cerebral realm. Also, there's a rejection in TIS of, of, of traditional interpretive principles. They don't like, they're like, you're just reducing the Bible to another text, you know, enumerating principles and then applying them. There's a real sort of pushback on that. Now, I would push back on that and say, yeah, but if you read even the earliest church fathers, you read Augustine, he enumerates principles for interpretation. So don't just say this is some modern Western phenomenon, right? You can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. We agree that interpreting the Bible just in the academy is a dead end, but, but, but don't throw everything out. Another characteristic, number two, of, uh, of TIS is that uh, practitioners of TIS emphasize confessing Christians as participants in the audience of interpretation. So that the interpretation is done in the church and for the church. A, a self-conscious desire to serve the church through, through interpretation. I think this is, again, this is, a good, this is a good thing in many ways, but it can also be, it can also be a cop-out. It can be a cop-out and say, look, we are a new reading community. We are the church. And so we read for ourselves rather than willing. It's almost like another reader response. We are people who believe and we respond and, we re- and we're writing for our community rather than seeing this is, the, this is true objective reality that we're willing to hold out openly before everyone, even though it applies ultimately to the church. So, so I, I agree. Again, it can be a good thing or it can be a little bit of a cop-out to avoid, you know, to avoid our, our, our prophetic role to the world. Another characteristic that you're going to find is, is doing exegesis under external theological parameters. So using creeds and the rule of faith uh, as a, an interpretive grid. Okay, this is, especially as Baptists, we have a, we have a healthy, I think, hesitation to that. And so you have commentary series that say, the interpretive grid for this series is the Nicene Creed. You're like, okay, you, but what does that mean? You know, and, or the interpretive grid is the is Chalcedon. The interpretive grid is quote the rule of faith of the early church, the summary of Orthodox Christianity. <clears throat> and so um, there's more and more of a of a, especially among people who who write in this vein, just a willingness to say, I don't need to defend myself. I just believe the creed, and I write in that parameter. Which again, you know, we, we, I think creeds can be helpful summaries of Scripture, but I also remember the words of Luther at the Diet of Worms, where he said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it's well known they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I'm bound by Scripture. And I'm bound, by, I'm bound by the scriptures I've quoted, he said, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. So that ultimately, you know, we can say, well, we interpret within the confines of the creed. We appeal to the creed. But, but I do think there's a, there's a dangerous, there can be a dangerous wandering from, from, from the authority of scripture itself. Let me, let me read to you from the Brazos Theological Commentary. This is a letter from a letter that was sent to people who are writing in that series. 
Okay, not to say I'm not like saying that this series is horrible or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's it's a different kind of commentary from what we're used to, and you're going to see more and more of these, and so we need to be aware, self-consciously aware. And it's interesting, you'll have one of these commentary series. I think in the Brazos commentary, if I'm not mistaken, Timothy George is doing one of the commentaries. Timothy George is a great scholar, great evangelical, solid biblically, and then you'll have in that same commentary series, you know, Jonah interpreted allegorically. And you're like, how, how can this be? Well, both of them are writing within the confines of the, the creed, and both of them are valuing transformation of the church, and both of them are, are um, valuing the history. Another real characteristic of TIS is valuing the way that the Bible's been interpreted throughout history, really wanting to go back to the fathers and the early church. And so if it, you, can, you can see you can have actually very divergent approaches that are similar in some ways. I mean, they both look at church history. They both value transformation of the church. But, but it's one thing to, to value the way Origen say, let's, it's valuable to, to value how Origen read this. It's another thing to read it in the same way that Origen did, to engage in allegorical exegesis. But so this, is, this was the parameters given to contributors to Brazos. It says, the series presupposes that the doctrinal tradition of the church can serve as a living and reliable basis for exegesis. So it's, it's kind of like if you have one of those, you have, if you have small children and you have one of those toys where they have different shapes on the top, do you know what I'm talking about? And you pass the thing through. That it's like, this is, the ni- this is the whatever creed. And so interpretation, you take that text, it's going to fit through that hole. That's it. It's making it. That's the, that's the grid that you have to pass through. <clears throat> this tradition, more specifically, is that, is that doctrine surrounding the Nicene Creed. The series promotes intratextual analysis. That's looking at parallel texts and echoing as its key method, along with drawing upon the liturgical practices and spiritual disciplines of the church as a secondary dimension of the canonical context for exegesis of scriptural texts. Such an approach can lead to various senses of scripture, including allegorical readings and requires that contributors engage the history of exegesis, not in order to provide readers with a summary of past interpretation, but in order to shape exegetical judgments in conversation. So there's just a lot more, it's just a little bit fuzzier around the edges, it seems to me, of, of landing on, on, a, on the authorial intent, allowing a lot broader. Um, so you may have someone who's into TIS. Like someone could read my book and say, well, you're TIS, you're, you're for the church. You're for transformative. You talk about prayer. You're devotional. Yeah, but TIS is a very big umbrella. And I, I predict at the end of the, my discussion of it in my book, I predict that in 10 years it's going to fracture because there are issues of ultimate authority that are now being hid by this initial euphoria. Like, wow, this is something new. This is different. This is better than just talking about what sources Matthew used. You know, like this is, this is fresh. And it's also, as a biblical scholar, I sometimes wonder, is this an excuse for people who don't know the languages to write commentaries? You know what I'm saying? Like, like you've got all these people who don't know Greek and Hebrew now who are jumping in. Yes, we want to write theological commentary for the church. It's like, well, is that because you're not really engaging the text close enough and you're just sort of reflecting on it? It's history. It, it, it makes me wonder uh, why why it, it's, it's going that way. But... Um, but I do think probably what eventually you have this, you know, this initial euphoria, you have, you have conservatives and liberals and all these people saying, oh, this is something new, this is fresh, this is interesting. But eventually it's going to come down to what's the final authority? Is it, is it the creed? 
Is it the is it the the church doctrine? Is it is it experience liberal Protestantism? Is it is it scripture? And so I think you're going to have a fracturing, and and the, I, it's it's hard to know whether the movement will continue to be will coalesce further or if it will just eventually. Whoosh. But right now there's all these series. I mean, it's just churning books out on this stuff. Baker has like 25 books related to theological interpretation. Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah, that's there is some of that. There is some of there is some of this disillusionment, this rejection of Western and modern and enlightenment, and you know, where has this gotten us? And and a, and a real comfort with divergent comfort with um, apparently irreconcilable um, assertions. You know, and, and, yeah. Yeah. And they say about one text. Different things. Or pretty different yeah. things. Yeah. And it yeah. does call into question um, does historical grammatical get you there? And, yeah. And, and, and I wonder that. Uh, it's almost like you're kind of. Uh, yeah. Kind of, uh, it's, it's almost like a reinterpretation of Kierkegaard. And you're going to have to take a leap out and believe what the church believes. Yeah. Trust scripture. Trust, our, uh, tr- trust that God is speaking. You, and then let's just go. Yeah, you're, there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that. But and and I do understand. Like I recently read a, a traditional grammatical historical commentary by an evangelical, reading a portion of it, and the vision I had in my head, he was he was he was on one of the gospels, and you know he was you know here we come to the text of the gospel, page after page of dealing with well is this. Um, the you know what is this a tradition that Mark inherited or how has he shaped this and is his source this or that and how is you know and I had the vision of someone trying to preach while they were being attacked by a swarm of bees you know he's just swatting away he's dealing with all these arguments you know of sort where did this come from is this a faithful Jesus tradition you know all this kind of stuff and you're like but the real meat of what that text is he's just you know and and to be honest many students when they read that now. They don't care. They don't want to read that. They're like, I'm not. I, I believe this is even thoughtful. I mean, we're not. We're not talking about simple. We're the intelligent, thoughtful students are like, those are not the questions I have. So, like the questions that people were asking 70 years ago. I mean, in the 1970s and 1980s, like defending historical reliability, fight, fight. You know, let's let's beat them at their own game. They can do source criticism. We can do it better. They can do redaction criticism. We can do it better. People are like, I'm not interested in that now. You know, and it's like, and part of it is like saying. You know, you can read a whole commentary and you're like, where is the guy's concern for the transformative effect of this word on, on himself and the people? And, and the commentary, the, com- the traditional academic commentator is like, I'll leave application of the text to the preacher. You're like, nah, that's why. You know, and you read early church, you know, the, the early, the fathers and medieval and reformation. That's not the way they wrote. That's a modern sort of, uh, it is a modern, you know, cutting up of the normal scripture to under, to believe and understand the scripture and obey it is all one piece you know um, and so we've we've un, Ill, such a legitimate criticism yet yet you know again pendulums often swing all the way to the other side before they come back so you know so there is value there is value too and 
thinking about, the, I mean, the early church fathers talked about the sources of the Gospels and compared them. I mean, you know, we don't want to throw everything out with, with that. But, yeah, I think, you, I think you're right to see that. Um, another, another characteristic of TIS is valuing story, drama and story. And you see this tying in with the biblical theology movement too, the narrative storyline of Scripture, real emphasis on story. The Scripture is the story of the living God, the language of drama. You may be familiar with Van Huser, a very influential evangelical scholar on interpretation, wrote a book talking about interpretation as, as a drama, the drama of doctrine, a canonical linguistic approach to Christian theology. Number five, uh, another characteristic of TIS is um, uh, a fascination with the way the Bible has been interpreted in the past. So looking, engaging the church fathers, and often it seems to me uncritically, like really, really valuing them. And, and I had a conversation with someone about this, and I, that was one time I found a little bit puzzling. You know, like we were, re- we were reading the epistle of Barnabas, and Barnabas... The Epistle of Barnabas says, oh, um, you know, uh, uh, the meaning of circumcision is the cross. And, and you're like, how in the world is the meaning of circumcision the cross? He's like, well, in Genesis, he, he says in, in Genesis, Abraham circumcises all the members of his family and his household. And, and then in another passage where he, he goes to save Lot, it says there are 318 member, male members of his household. So he conflates those two and says, there were 318 people that Abraham circumcised. It says 318. In Greek, in Greek, written like this. That's how you wrote 318 in Greek. These are the first two letters of Jesus. And this is the cross. Thus, the meaning of circumcision is the cross. <laughs> you know, of course, of course, <laughs> Genesis is written in Hebrew, right? Not in Greek. I mean, obviously, he's looking later at Greek. And, and, and I mean, you're like, no way. You know, no, mo- no, no way did Moses, when he wrote about circumcision, imply that, 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 that the meaning of 318 is a... But, but, but I, when I was talking with someone who's, who's more inclined to the TIS movement, he said, well, how do we know that's wrong? And I was like, well, <laughs> I mean, are you serious? You know, it's like this kind of, this sort of pre, this sort of, well, who, it's this, again, this sort of postmodern relativistic, like, well, it's kind of a, you know, arrogant of us to claim that our way of interpreting that is right and, and theirs is wrong. And, and, and maybe he was just playing with me a little bit. But, but I, I, there's, there's this, it seems to me, an uncritical acceptance of early interpretations. Like, wow, we talk about them, they say they're so robust, they're so thick. They're, you know, whatever word we want to use for it, you're like, well, they may be, but they also are wrong oftentimes, you know. And, and, and Luther and Calvin and other people weren't afraid to call it out. I mean, Luther said, origins exegesis is worth less than dirt. I mean, he, he said it's just... It's, it's not valuable because he's just, he's just, it's fanciful. And Luther has a fascinating section in his Genesis commentary where he says, oh, these guys who do this allegorical stuff, I, was, I could do it too. He's like, in fact, I was pretty good at it. And people thought I was good at it. He's like, but that's not faithful to Scripture. He's like, we can go down that road and we can get, per, we can get celebrated for doing that. And there's also with this, this uncritical acceptance of the past, there's two movements going on. And one of them is an interest in something called reception history. And the other one is an interest in something called effective history. And, and, and basically, reception history is how the text has been received. So it takes the emphasis off on whether it's right or wrong, but it's like, how did they understand the text? And it's just, 
really interested in let's in, let's engage let's really understand how origin understood this and just that's all we have to ask we don't have to move beyond that just engage that and effective history speaks about how the text was not only understood but how it affected art and culture and and that's very fascinating to see how it affected the economy and art and culture it's very cross-disciplinary but again it, it seems to me that there's not often a critical eye to this like what should be the effect but it's more just a celebration and entering into studying the effect it's it's more sociological than it is prescriptive okay but but those, those are two things that are really big and you can see i mean everyone's always looking for middle road right i think it means this you think it means that i think it's authoritative you don't think it's authoritative i think this you think that we can agree on this like so then this is more of a middle ground right how did other people believe it we, we can both kind of sort of reach well they agreed they thought about it this way and so we're not fighting about whether it's authoritative or whether it says this or that or we can both pleasantly discuss how it affected various things without making truth claims ourselves right so you can see the attraction of this in the secular academy where where final truth claims are not are not very desirable um talked about the interest in effective history and the interest in, in a good thing in the transform, transformation of the individual and the faith community. That's, that's a good thing. So again, I think there are some many good, there are good things within the movement, um, but they're also uh, very, um, they're potentially troubling things about ultimate authority and about um, proper, proper interpretive methods and about... Um, um, you know the prescriptive nature of the text, but but it's it's still it's very amorphous right now, and and in the last year you've had a lot of publications on TIS coming out, so it's becoming more people are see a lot as as one person said a lot of people are writing about TIS, but who's doing it? But there are these three or four commentary series that are coming out now, and so we're going to see more and more. Actually, right before I came here, I got an advertisement for one. It's called the. Uh, um, Text in Context View. The Text in Context View, it's by Fortress. There's another one, I think, by, by Westminster, John Knox. It's the Belief Commentary. So you have all these different... And so here, here's what's going on with Fortress. Again, I just printed this advertisement off I got. It said, here, a diverse gathering of scholars. So they're valuing diversity, right? We've got, all, we've got diversity. A diverse gathering of scholars from around the globe, multicultural. That's another big thing that's coming up, too, is ethno-hermeneutics. Ethno-hermeneutics is, is reading, um, reading the text within your ethnic group and, and understanding, understandings that are provided by your ethnic cultural context. Here, a diverse gathering of scholars from around the globe brings out new insights and new questions from the gospel according to Mark, conveying again the insight that the biblical text does not speak in its own voice, but must be read and interpreted in community. So the value of interpretive community the value of different ethnic groups studying the text. Um, Mark foregrounds cross-cultural readings of family and class, the sacred and demonic realms, boundaries and ethnicity, the nature of divine power, offering stimulating insights for students and scholars, blah, blah, blah. So, um, But I think we're just going to... Obviously, this is what people are working on, and there's going to be more and more... Um, more and more people, uh, more and more stuff pouring out. So just being aware that, that this is going to influence the, com the commentaries that you see, the things that, you know, the, this, the monograph series. There are a number of different 
Um, there's a number of different uh, publishers now that have monograph series entitled Theogra Theological Imper Interpretation Monograph Series or whatever like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think that there's um, um, there that it, it was the topic of a doctoral seminar in the in the school of theology. So the systematic theologian people actually took a semester study. We just the most um, in the last year, the Southern Baptist Journal of Theology actually did a article, did a whole volume on TIS describing it, illustrating some aspects of it. So that's online. You could look you could look at look at part of that. I think there is um just like me, I think in the way that I'm describing it, I think that there's a a value of many of the good things in it, seeking to for the to help the church and for transformation. But there's also there's just some some amongst among probably most of the faculty some hesitancy about um, the uncritical nature of of valuing church tradition. You know, like uh, we want to we value prior interpretation, but we want to be critical about it. We don't just say, well, you know, we we say, is it right or is it wrong? Um, so I think there are some people are, are more excited about it than others. Um, and some, maybe some of the older faculty are probably a little bit like just a fad. You know, how is this really that different from what we've already been doing? You know, we've been writing for the church and, you know, uh, you know, how is this, how is this really any different? And, and the TIS people would say, well, again, they, I think they would say we're very self-consciously confessional. We're within a confessional creedal framework and we're very self-consciously writing for the church and for and for many of the people who are who are leading this out liberal protestant faculty at liberal protestant seminaries this is pretty radical for them right because they they haven't been writing for the church they've been in their ivory tower so they're rediscovering writing for the church serving the church the question is will will their theology um, theological aberrations you know, spill over even more into the church by this means. You know, if they're if they're rejected the authority of Scripture and other things, so it's still very early. Like I said, this this ball could could break, and then ten years from now, everyone could be like, "Remember, remember that when everybody was using that buzzword, and and that was the thing, and now no one's using it." Or it could it could be like a snowball rolling down the hill and gain mass. And go for several more decades and kind of become more of a dominant paradigm. My guess is publishers like to publish what people are excited about and what sells. And the reason that publishers are, are get, jumping on board with this is because people are buying it. And it's the hot, hot thing. It's what people want to write, what people want to sell, people want to buy. So that's kind of telling. So that means there's, there's some future of it in, the, in that way. And if you go to the professional society meetings, that's, there's a lot of buzz about it there, and books being written about it, and things like that. So, any other questions? Good questions. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. I had a, I had a student, I had a, a, a fellow faculty member ask me, "Could you summarize what is TIS?" Because the, even among even among people in a, a cat in the academy, it's, it's in the last year it's been a little bit confusing. It's gaining more solidity. But could you tell me in one sentence what it is? I'd say <laughs> a rejection of traditional grammatical historical exegesis for a new method of study that primarily values interpretation in and for the church. But there's all different kinds of nuances to that about valuing history, writing within a creedal framework, and things like that. But it's rejection of the, of the old and embracing, especially writing for the church, which means writing within a, according to many people, writing within a creedal framework, writing, writing with a value in the church tradition and history, sometimes uncritically, that kind of thing. So that's the best I can do. Um, all right. As you look at your notes, the next recent trend is bib- the biblical theology movement, and we, we've talked about that already. The biblical theology movement, and that that term, biblical theology, is very confusing. I I had a, a student who was writing a paper, a doctoral student on biblical theology. And he's like, I'm so confused. What? He's like, I'm trying to figure out what this is. <laughs> and and because it's confusing, I mean, you're like theology is talking about God. So biblical theology wouldn't that just be theology that's based on the Bible talking about God? I mean, that seems to be the natural. And some people, that's what they mean. I don't engage in in uh, heretical theology. I engage in biblical theology. Right? That's one one way to do it. But but biblical theology. So one of it is just sort of an affirmation of orthodoxy. Right? I engage in orthodox theology. I engage in biblical theology. Uh, the traditional way of understanding the term biblical theology is to understand the nuances of particular texts. So, in other words, if if you look at the way this term was used in the in the 1800s and the 1900s, um, it, it had to, when you talk about a biblical theology, you would say, "I'm doing a biblical theology of servanthood." And so, what that would mean is, I'm looking now in the Gospel of John. What's John's theology of servanthood? And it 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 focuses on the nuances. Not, not in the sense of saying these can't be reconciled, but it, it's, like, it's like doing a botanical garden. It's like, let's, let's, let's take a look and see. Let's look at these flowers, and then let's look at these. And they're all different, and it's okay that they're different, focusing on those nuances. But really, the way it's being used now, so you still find this usage in traditional, traditional biblical scholarship. You know, to do a biblical, we don't want to do a systematic theology that railroads over all the commonalities of Scripture. We want to do a biblical theology where we listen to the nuances of the particular authors and things. But, but really, the the term as it's being used now by a lot of people is what we could call a meta narrative, an overarching narrative approach to Scripture. So when they say biblical theology, what they really mean is, I have, I am asserting a meta narrative of Scripture. Creation, fall, consummation, redemption, or kingdom, kingdom inaugurated, kingdom anticipated, kingdom prophesied, kingdom arrived, kingdom completed, you know, whatever it is, you've got this meta narrative, this grand story of the kingdom or of um, creation, fall, uh, redemption, consummation. And whatever, so you have that, bit, here's the big meta narrative, the big arch within Scripture, which we all acknowledge there's, there's some big story in Scripture, but it's focusing on any particular story within that relating it to that meta narrative that's what that's what graham goldsworthy and and that's what tim as far as i can tell tim keller approach to preaching his which tim keller is a very gifted preacher but his redemptive historical approach to preaching is that something i've seen a few nods 
He, he calls it a redemptive historical approach to preaching. And redemptive history, right, redemptive historical, is just saying God has worked in history to save people. He created people. He promised his salvation. He brought salvation. He, he affects salvation. So it's just, it's just saying there's a big story of God saving people. And any particular text I use, I'm going to jump out to that story and relate it to that big piece. And that's what people often mean by biblical theology now or by redemptive historical preaching. Or me- I'm listening right now. I haven't gotten very far, but if you go on iTunes, you can download uh, Tim Keller's um, lectures on preaching. I see some nice. Anyone listen to some of those? I started listening to those. Someone recommended them. Tim Keller and, and Ed, Edmund Clowney, who's now passed away, do, they tag team these lectures on preaching. And I just listened to the first two or three, and, and basically the first two or three are explaining this. So they're explaining the meta narrative, redemptive historical approach that's, that they're using. And if you, like, I, I looked at Michael Lawrence's book. Um, has anyone seen that book? It's a book Nine Marks has pushed. I think it's called. Biblical theology in the church. It's like, how does biblical theology play into pastoral ministry? And I just just read a little bit of it, but it was exactly, you know, he was defining biblical theology this way. There's an overarching theme. Any particular text fits within that meta narrative. So it's just interesting that when people say this, they don't always mean the same thing. You're like, if someone says, I'm into biblical theology, I would encourage you to say, well, what do you, not in an antagonistic way, just say, I know that term means several different things. Could you explain to me what you mean? And, and to get clarification on that. So I critique in, in my book, um, I think that the merit, looking at the meta narratives of the scripture it can be helpful. Um, let's see. I don't, mm-hmm. uh, sure. Uh, but, the, um, but if you look in one of my chapters here, I say, um, page, uh, chapter 17, page 151 and following. I say, what is the overarching message of the Bible? And uh, I, I offer, um, I say that, to, as I've, I've, I've you know, anticipated this in previous discussion, but I say to make any one of these meta narratives absolute, it seems to me, fails to hear the nuances. You need to have promise fulfillment. You need to have kingdom. You need to have old covenant, new covenant. You need to have law and gospel. You need to, you know, so all of these together give us a full orb picture from many different angles. And, and if we just take one of them and say, this is the meta narrative, then, then we, we basically end up reading. I have, a, I have a colleague I'll leave unnamed, and he and I were discussing this issue, and he's like, I'm really concerned when people start talking about the grid that they have to read Scripture through. And he's like, because it, it, and he's like I really get concerned when people are like, that's my lens. And, and and saying whatever it is, the kingdom or the... And he's like, because I think it fails... It, it Again, it creates a level of authority above the actual text. So, in other words, my concerns about that are not, are not alone. Okay, um, translation debates. We already talked a little bit about, about that and the T and IV. I don't know if we need to talk any more about that. Um, that that's died down a lot, though, hasn't it? I mean, it, about five years ago, that was really hot, but now um, people are calm, and the TNIV actually got pulled. The political pressure against it succeeded, and so now um, they're wisely moving slowly and building consensus, and hopefully, going to come out with a good revision of the NIV that will will not be um, that will that will not be attacked in that way. Um, there's something called the redemptive movement hermeneutic. 
that you find. Uh, this is characterized by, by the work of William Webb. Has anyone ever heard of William Webb? He wrote a book called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, William Webb. And he basically says in the Bible, here's the Old Testament, here's the New Testament, and here's the Christian history right here. He says in the Bible we have these progressive anticipations um, of, of redemption that point outside the Scripture, that ultimate expression is found beyond the explicit language of Scripture. So it's a redemptive trajectory, a redemptive movement. So he would say, yeah, yeah, in the Bible itself, there's, there's not an allowance for women to be pastors, maybe. But there sure is a strong movement in that, reject, in that direction that point, you know, that's radical in the culture in that time, that points beyond it to a period um, beyond the actual recording of the canonical witness. Now, what this does, this is pretty radical, isn't it? Because it makes the canon insufficient in terms of final authority. It says the the ultimate expression of morality and doctrine is pointed to beyond the canon. And and then what are your parameters there? So... To be frank, Webb is a relatively conservative. Um, I mean, he's not arguing that homosexuality is, is okay. He argues that that is not pointed out trajectory-wise outside the canon. But he does argue that women as pastors is pointed outside the canon. Um, Tom Schreiner wrote a, a fabulous, extensive critique of this that you can download like a 15-page critique of William Webb's book and this whole redemptive trajectory movement. At the, and you can download a free copy of that at www.cbmw.org. You guys familiar with the website CBMW? Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's a great resource. Anything related to family ministry, gender issues. <clears throat> Wayne Grudem's book, like 101 Questions About evangelical feminism, free down, you can free view it for free on there, all that, it's hundreds of articles and things. But if you go on there, the, the specifically, the, the, if you click on resources or something, then you just search for Shriner. Uh, he, he has an extensive point-by-point critique of, of Webb's suggestions. You know, one of them being, of course, we pointed out, this, this really makes the canon, the traditional doctrine we've understood of the sufficiency of Scripture is no longer True, Scripture is insufficient. So then it's, we have to look outside of Scripture to other criteria. <clears throat> and then what criteria are you going to choose? So he has ex- more, more critique than that, helpful critique. But that's, that's a great resource. This is a great resource for anything related to, again, to the role of women and men. And this has great stuff. You know, one, one thing, because we're in this sort of combative environment with, with feminism, sometimes women in the, in the seminary will hear... Um, will hear, uh, you know, it sounds like this is what they hear. Women can't do this. Women can't do this. Women can't do this. It's a horrible thing for people to hear. It's like, oh, when they talk about women, they talk about what we can't do. You know, that's, that's a bad, that's an unhealthy situation. And, and this website, I love, there's an article by Grudem. He's like, a hundred things women can do in the church or something like that. And he lists all these different ministries and all these different activities. It's, it's a corrective. It's like, let's stop just talking about what, women can't do, and let's list all the many things they can do. And he also speaks, he carefully talks about, um, you know, a continuum where there's, you know, things that Scripture clearly forbids, like pastoring, 
um, elder, pastor, and then there's things which Scripture clearly allows. And then there's also in the middle, there is, it's admittedly, there's, there's gray area. We have to admit, you know, someone's like, well, what, what about a woman leading an adult Sunday school? And, or what about a woman leading a youth Sunday school with boys who are 17? You know, what about, you know, and there are people who will be like, well, I don't think that. Well, I think that. And he's like, let's be honest, there's a gray area. You can't say definitively no or definitively yes. But there's, and he, he, he shares where he stands on some of that. With that one final note about Shriner I wanted to mention to you all, I, uh, <clears throat> I was at the an, um, professional society meeting where William Webb was responding to his critiques to his redemptive trajectory hermeneutic and he was he was up at the front and he was and there was another person not tom schreiner who'd written a review of his work that was very very critical and and he i haven't read have not read that review and he was angry very angry and basically he's saying you have misrepresented my work and you have misrepresented me and there was, I mean, there was anger between these two people. But what I really thought was telling was he said, to, he said, Tom Schreiner wrote a review of my work. And even though he disagrees with me, he was respectful and he, was, he, he accurately represented what I said. I was like, man, that's a, what a testimony to Tom Schreiner, you know. Here's a man, and that's true about Tom. Tom, he's very peaceable. He's not attacking. He's not polemical. So I thought, here, here, in other words, here's an article that fully critiques this. But even the author says, you, you understood what I said and you represented it fairly even though you disagree with me. So I thought that was, uh, and that also to me was a warning. It's like, don't be like that other guy. Don't, don't you know, I don't read it, but I assume he was, he's telling the truth. Don't let me write something that someone could say, you really just misrepresented me. So whenever I write something, I always try to think, the person who I'm writing about, would they agree that I've told the truth? And I often now will even send a copy to someone, which can lead to some tension. <laughs> that when I write a review of someone's book, I'll send them a copy and I'll say, I just wrote a review of your book. I haven't submitted it yet. Feel free to, to offer any correction or critique. And I'll, I'll it'll usually, I mean, usually things will be friendly, but, but sometimes there'll be a little tension there if they don't like what I said. But I try, again, I try to do it in such a way that they can't. They can't be like you're hateful, you know, or so on. So that's how, that's been helpful for me to to have that model. Final final uh, analysis here. Uh, a movement that we're going to look at is called speech act theory. And I don't really know again how much of this is going to is going to um, go down to the pew, really. But um, does it affect things that are being written? Yes. Um, the New International Greek Testament Commentary, you know, this is one of the best series of, of New Testament commentaries. The most recent one by Thistleton on First, on first Corinthians is written applying speech act theory. So if you're like, I don't think I'll ever run into that. Well, if you preach First Corinthians and you use one of the best commentaries on it, you probably will. Um, also, Baker just... Uh, they're one of their main hermeneutics texts that people that they they push to be used in Bible colleges and seminaries is Janine Brown's um, Scripture as let's see if I can think of the time um, make sure I get the title right here I think it's Scripture as communication and her her hermeneutics text her interpretation text is built on speech act theory and I talked to a student who goes to Bethel College and Seminary he said Bethel College and Seminary. The hermeneutics classes are all speech act theory. So it has, a, it has some influence in schools and it has some influence on resources. So what is speech act theory? Speech act theory is, 
is a linguistic philosophical phenomenon. It, it's traced back to, uh, as, a, as a philosophical movement, traced back to 1955 and the work of, of Austin and Searle and some other people. Uh, Austin at Harvard, his lectures, John L. Austin's lectures at Harvard. But basically, it's a recognition that language in and of itself doesn't just communicate things, language does things. Language is inherently action-based. Language is inherently action-based, and it does things. And we, we fail to understand language if we just think of it as giving propositions. Language is action-based. And so people who study uh, who uh, speech act theorists, they, they break this down and they talk about the locutionary act and the illocutionary act. This, and this is you know, com- kind of confusing, I think. And the perlocutionary act. And uh, Janine Brown has recommended, helpfully, I think, some terminology that makes that easier to understand. Let's see what she recommended. Speaker saying. Speaker saying, speaker's verbal action. And hearer's response. Okay, let's, let's, let's think about, let's back up for just a second. Think about how, how language is action-based. Okay, my wa- I go home, and my wife says, do you think the trash smells? Right? Okay, now if we examine that simply with propositional language, we'd say his wife is asking him a question. Does he think the trash smells? However, if we think about action more, speech more functionally, we have to admit, really, that is a request. And that says, will you take the trash out? <laughs> right? In other words, if I just read that at its base level, I'm really missing the fun, what, that, what that language is doing. And then it sets in response an action of me taking the trash out. Right? <laughs> Depends on how long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully, uh, to keep things peaceable. Uh, we'll work together on that. But this works as well in, in language. Let's, uh, let's, in, in the Bible, let's think about this. Okay, so the locutionary act, again, is just the meaning of the utterance with respect to normal grammar. So that would be the question. Take the trash out. Illocutionary act is the action performed, which is a request. Will you take the trash out? The perlocutionary act is the action brought about by the result of the utterance, me taking the trash out. You see, there's, there's action inherent in the language and action that results from the language. We can find in Scripture, for example, the way we approach Scripture, Matthew 13, verse 45 through 46. Uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Matthew reports that Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, who went away and sold everything he had, he had and bought it. Okay, so what's the locutionary act? The locutionary act is, is um, the statement of Jesus with reference to the thing described. The Greek words written by Matthew with respect to their normal descriptive sense. Okay, just, just the reporting of the event. But the illocutionary act, what's the speaker's action? We can paraphrase it this way. I, Matthew, as a follower of Jesus urge and request you to accept the Lord's teaching here faithfully transmitted. I charge you, value his kingdom above all else. Right? That, that story about Jesus is an action appealing to people. Value the kingdom like this man valued this pearl. In other words, it's not just like Jesus is telling a propositional story and then everyone can be like, 
and then walk away, right? It's really an appeal. It's an, it's an action that's taking place there. And then the perlocutionary force would be the people, what do people do in response to that? Do they go away then and value the kingdom above all else? That would be the intended perlocutionary force. Now, um, in, in the book, I critique this, and I say this is valuable in one way. It recognizes that, act, that language is inherently, does have an action component, and that's just a real... In other words, that did, we can't just say in 1955, suddenly language took on an action component. We really, it's, just, it's just that suddenly a philosophical uh, school developed to describe it more systematically. Language is inherently action-based, whether they described it or not. And, and evangelicals have found this appealing because it, it really interestingly fits in with the doctrine of God speaking, right? When God speaks, things happen. Uh, God says, let there be light, and there is light. And God, in Scripture, uh, in Isaiah, God says that His Word is like rain uh, that falls down and waters the earth, does not return to Him void, Isaiah 55. Or, or that His Word is like a rock that breaks a hammer into pe- uh, a, ha- a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces, or like a fire. And so, so we see that we also recognize that, that this teaching of Scripture is not simply to convey factual content, but to exhort and encourage people to certain ends, to repentance and to faith, and that there is an expected actual response to that, right? And so it's helpful in thinking about those issues of meaning and application and response. So evangelicals have found found this helpful. Also, uh, Janine Brown and other people, you know, sometimes... Uh, in, 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 in the broader world of interpretation and philo- philosophy, people try to say, well, the meaning is not what the author intended. And some evangelicals have stepped in and said, but look at speech act theory. Everyone admits that, that's, that language is action-based. How can you have an action without an actor? And so they try to, they say, try to ground this back into the, the actor, the speaker, the original speaker, and say, see, even speech act theory supports authorial intent through understanding Language is action-based and the need for an actor. So I think that that can be helpful to point out. Other people, actually, uh, Greg Allison has, has tried to show how uh, understanding Scripture is God's speech and understanding speech act theory. He's tried to draw together infallibility and inerrancy and some other doctrines of Scripture to be explicated on the basis of speech act theory. Um, so I, I in the critique of this, I go into more detail and I say, you know, this is helpful, but to be honest, this language here is really hard for most people to pick up and remember. I mean, you know, people see when you say, my wife takes the trash, you know, wants me to take the trash out. They're like, yeah, I see that. But, but the problem is um, conveying in a persuasive way how this is really going to affect verse-by-verse interpretation and then having a language that people can hold on to and repeat and explain to others easily is, is something that's a little bit lacking. So... So speech act theory, how well it's going to continue to catch on will depend somewhat upon its practitioners. And here's, here's what Janine Brown is trying to do. She's trying to make it more accessible. She's like, look, let's use words people understand already. Let's not introduce new vocabulary. Let's try to, try to make it understandable. And so, again, time will tell whether this succeeds or not. I, I think it's, it's right now there's a strong possibility that 30, 50, 100 years from now, Speech Act Theory will be an entry in a dictionary, and it won't be something that people are talking about. But insofar as this describes a real feature of language, language is action-based. It's reminding us of something that we forgot or that we ignored. That is helpful. So if that, if that comes to, to bear and continues, then we can be, 
we, we can say that it's made, made a contribution. So if you run into that, that language in some commentaries and, you know, everyone now, you know, it's, it's still kind of a big deal. So people make obeisance to it. They say, you know, of course, speech act theory this, of course, speech act theory that. But, but in terms of people consistently applying it in the study of Scripture, the only, only commentary I know so far that does that is Thistleton. So we'll have to see if other people pick that up and do that. Does, oh, last one, missional hermeneutics. I forgot to mention that. The word missional is an interesting word. So like biblical theology, people mean different things by it, don't they? What does it mean to be missional? Uh, I think a lot of people use the word because they think it means I'm for mission and I'm, I'm with the current things. I'm not some old fuddy-duddy. You know, I'm missional. I'm, and uh, Ed Stetzer has, has uh, if you go to his blog, he, he works for Lifeway. But he has multiple uh, blog entries discussing what does the term missional mean. And, and basically, I guess we can say it's a recognition that it's, it's rejecting the traditional term missionary because that seems to bifurcate the life of the church from the mission. It's like mission is out there and then the church is here. But it's recognizing that the totality of the, the church and Christian life is to be defined by the mission of God to to send for his redemption and transformation of the world. So it's, it's broad and it, it's encompassing and it's of, of the totality of the Christian life. It's not just we do mission, but we are missional. We're a missional community. We're, we're, in, we're, we're together consciously serving as God's transformative agents. And, and so it's, a, it's an attempt to try to be a little bit more <coughs> uh, all-pervasive of the Christian life. And mi- you have missional hermeneutics now, missional theology, and they say... When we read the Bible, we have to remember it's a missional document. It's God reaching out to humanity. It's Paul writing to communities that he's founded. Like, if you don't read it within the context of missional communities and missional God, then you're really missing the very nature of the Scriptures. And so you have people like Christopher Wright who've written the mission of God, a missional theology of the Old Testament, and other people trying to say, let's, let's, it's, let's approach the Scripture remembering it's a missional document from a missional God and see how it informs what we're really supposed to be as communities on mission for God, consciously missional. So um, that's, a, that's another trend that you, that you run into. Okay, any final questions about current trends or issues or anything at all that you think of? Anything's fair game. There's nothing off limits. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's a helpful reminder. You know, it's kind of like the speech act theory. There is a, there. You're like there is something there. It's true. Language is action based. Missional. You're like yeah, it's true. The scriptures present God as reaching out to humanity and revealing Himself and creating communities that are outposts for His redemptive movement. You know. And, and so I think it's, it's a helpful reminder, but it, it's, hard not to, it's hard to not hear it as a sloganism almost, like jumping on board the, the missional bus, you know, or with people being, you know, churches want to be missional, meaning that they want to be cool and, and they want to be growing. You know, they want to be, I think a lot of times um, there's not a lot of careful thought about the, the, what they're saying with that. I think it's saying we want to be a presence in the community that's, that's transformative, that's evangelistic, 
but it's not just we're in other words we're not just going out in the community and knocking on doors one day a week and passing out passing out tracks we want to be tra- which is there's nothing wrong with that i passed out tracks in communities but we want to be really indigenous and transformative and you know we want to we want, we don't just want to pass on information we want to be a whole community that is characterized by this so it's it's a word that is that a spot that is an aspiring word it's a word that we hope to be i think it's a word that expresses a lot of hope Of course, there's, you know, the word origi- originated with, with some more liberal Protestant tradition. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's again, it's, it's a word that's pretty fluid. It's used differently by different people. You guys are worn out. It's about time to stop. But I want to give you a chance. It's your chance to ask questions or say things. Anything's fair game. It's interpretation. So if you looked in the book and something caught your attention or you you just like, why didn't he talk about X? I wanted to know about Y, Z, whatever. It's your chance. Did you not say much on the translation Let me just shut my phone off. Sorry about that. Somewhere it's in there. I think. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. Someone's calling. I think we'll just let my phone ring a little bit. Um, okay. Uh, I just felt like we already talked about it, but but I'd be happy to talk about it more. Okay. Let's let's talk. You do or you don't want me to talk about it. I just wondered, was there something that you skipped? Or? No, it's just uh, the main translation debate was. Um, here's the issue. Gen, when you know the the TNIV, and in fact various translations do this. The CEV, the NLT, they just haven't encountered the, the firestorm of controversy that the TNIV has. The TNIV would say, we're not using gender-neutral pronouns. We're using gender-accurate. Okay, so again, they're like, they're like, we're not trying to neutralize gender, but we're trying to say, here's the example. If I'm a teacher now, and I, if I'm talking to a classroom with men and women, and I say, hey, if you have any questions, um, uh, stay after class, and, uh, you know, there's some, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm referring to the students. If there's a student who has a question, I'd be happy to talk with them after class. Well, you notice the way I talked about that. I, I, I said them. We use them almost as a generic. We don't say he. If there's a student, I'd like to talk with him after class. You know, we, people would be like, or, you know, I could say he or she, but that sounds cumbersome. But there, there is a shift in language, undeniable shift towards away from using he as a generic singular. You know, if you read, read uh, you know. Now, the question is, What's, you know, is that something that's worth fighting against? Is that, a, is that a moral, you know, is that attacking the distinctions between men and women? And, and is that attacking, um, is that driven by a feminist agenda? Probably is driven by a feminist agenda. But, but the way that people speak is changing. Is it capitulating to that feminist agenda to have Bibles that follow that sort of art, you know, or in other words... Someone's saying, no, this is an issue we're going to stand on, and we're going to write English the way we did in the 1940s and 1950s, and we're going to say he for a generic singular. We're not going to say he and she. We're not going to say them. And someone's like, that's not really a moral issue. That's just a question about how the culture, there are plenty of other cultures that, that don't have any moral, you know, it's, it's just we know that feminism has changed our language, and so we're equating that change in language with feminism. We're not capitulating with feminism, to use the language that people use in everyday speech. And so, but then there's that debate. 
There's the side that supports the ESV that says you aren't capitulating to feminism. There's, there's male headship implicitly taught with the singular male pronoun. And, and people would say, no, that's just a convention of language, you know. And, but, but everyone recognizes that many of the he's and the brothers in Scripture refer to broader usage. I mean, if you look at the ESV footnotes, every time it talks about the brothers, almost always it'll have a footnote or brothers and sisters, recognizing that it's written to the entire Christian community. So the question is not do some generic pronouns and do they but how much of that do you bring out in translation and how, how you know and, and it ties back to philosophy of translation is translation more word for word you know or is it more meaning for meaning and and uh what is implicitly communicated like uh, one thing i didn't like that that happened in the psalms i'll be honest one thing i don't like about the tniv is in the psalms they made them all plural um, to, to avoid the he, and, the, and I think that's a big mistake because the psalms are often the king speaking for the nation. There are emo- the psalms, many of them are messianic, you know, and anticipatory of the Messiah. And so to, you lose, I think that's a, where you said, hey, I respect what you're trying to do here, but you lost something in doing that. And, and so that's where I would hopefully in the, in the new revision that's going to be more, more uh, middle of the road, they'll have backed off like maybe the plurals and the psalms and some things like that. And so it can be a little bit more like, hey, you know, more discussion, more a better, a better translation. In your pastoral ministry, um, do you encourage a multitude of translations to be used uh, among your people? Uh, would you prefer they use kind of one translation just for, let's say, children's memory? Yeah. You know, because yeah. you memorize one thing in one class and then yeah. We've had some issues there with yeah. trying to... Well, we, we, the, our Pew Bible is the NIV Yeah, at the, at the church. So that's what we use. Um, but um, uh, I, you know, I went through the struggle when I started getting Bible verses for my kids because I was like, uh, what am I going to do? Um, and I, I, I went with the NIV too for readability and for accuracy, I thought. I thought about doing something a little bit easier, like the New Living Translation. How you know? How is someone right with God rather than the righteousness of God? But I was like, no, I think I want them something they can ha- carry with them, you know, when they're 16 and when they're 22. So um, I think it is a good idea. I will tell you, we just we uh, your question shows inconsistency in at, at our church. Because we get some memory verses sent home from the Sunday school, and and they're prepackaged sort of thing, and they're ESV, and uh, I I don't use them to be honest because we I have my own verses that I'm kind of I have that I've picked that I'm doing for my kids, but we really should have the NIV to be consistent. But it's probably just the publisher we're using uses the ESV, which is fine. But it's it's I just think. Just my, it's just my preference. The ESV is a good translation. And if you memorize the ESV, it's good. I just think for most people, it's a little bit stilt, a little bit less non-standard English. So if you had your way in your church, you'd probably pick one translation. Yeah. It doesn't sound like you're that big on either one, but yeah. you pick one and you do everything with one. Um, I think it would be helpful, especially since we chose to preach from the NIV and have the NIV in the pew. That was a conscious decision. There was debate about it. 
that we should seek to be consistent and have that in the children's ministry as well. Yeah, I think that that's that's good. Actually, uh, I'll try to remember to talk with the children's minister about that and see. He's probably thought about it too. He's he's a thoughtful guy. So um, we, we I think we're in the middle of switching some children's curriculum too. So I don't know how that's going to affect all that. That's a good question. I do think it's good for people to have different translations on their shelf though. For someone to have an NIV, an ESV, an NLT, and to sometimes read them, you know, read the different translations and do their Bible reading for that day in a different translation and just, um, just hear, it helps them hear the text afresh, I think. I've heard pastors talk about the adamant King James Version Bible. Yeah. Yeah. A new American Standard version just because it read so differently it made them look at the text. Yeah. Yeah, it can if you if you become accustomed to hearing, you know, you can become your ears can become dull to hearing the text and a fresh translation can jar you back and then when you go back to your old text, you can still hear it fresh, I think. So it's not like it's it wasn't there but you just couldn't hear it, I think. Jason? Being hard on yourself. I'd like, to, I'd like to just read a short text. Just oh, yeah. I read this morning. Yeah. And would it be possible for you just to kind of say, hey, here are some interpretive guidelines sure. that I would use. Here are some resources. Here are some things I would consider. Sure. In Let's do that. It's in Mark 11. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got, yeah Gen- I'm doing the, the flood. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> what illustration would you use? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Mark 11, and it's, uh, it's, it's the fig tree. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. I'm more interested in, in kind of Jesus' response there. Yeah. Verse 22, where Jesus answered and said, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says that his mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not yeah. doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Yeah. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, mm. you mm. <coughs> Very good. Yeah. Let me mention something about the fig tree first, okay? Because I think one time we had someone preach in chapel, and they're like, uh, um, and and they said, uh, you know, here we're reading about the, um, you know, I think we're reading about the cleansing of the temple. I'm not going to talk about the fig tree. You know, and I was like, oh, don't do that. Right? Because Mark, if you read the Gospel of Mark, one of the features of the Gospel of Mark is what are called intercalations or sandwiches. And Mark does this all the time. He, he includes, he starts, he starts a story, he sticks another one in the center, and then he finishes the story. He makes a sandwich. There's about 12, 15 of these. They're everywhere. And they usually are, for contrast, are mutually interpretive. And you notice he's got the fig tree... And, and how do we know this? We know this because we read the whole Gospel of Mark, right? We're not just coming in, flying in on this one section. We got, we got, so it shows the importance of studying the whole book, reading the whole book, knowing about the, the book, the way it's structured. So we've got the fig tree, fig tree, and what's in the middle? The cleansing, the, the temple cleansing. And, and uh, it seems quite clear that Mark wants us through that, through that arrangement to understand the fig tree as symbolic of, of God's judgment on the nation of Israel and on the temple, like Jesus' pronouncement of uh, s- sort of 
a proleptic, anticipatory pronouncement of God's judgment and rejection of the Jewish nation on, in the temple there is, in, is symbolically is, is illustrated by the fig tree, right? The fig tree in the Old Testament, fig tree, rep, uh, fig tree can represent uh, the nation of Israel. There's no fruit. There's a curse. The God's judgment falls on it. So he wants you to understand this is not just Jesus. Jesus is not just mad at a fig tree, right? This is an acted out parable. And, and that, 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 that arrangement seems to be intentional that he's doing that. Now, let's talk about the, the that's, a, that's an interesting verse. 23, I tell the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he, he says will happen, it will be done for him. So um, I, I, I um, preached through a similar text to this a while back in James 5. And uh, not, I'm, I'm coming back here, but I'm just, I'm just thinking about how I explained it in James 5. It's talking about the prayer for the sick person. You know, and it says, verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Right? No qualifications given. Whatever you believe for, whatever you believe, you'll get. That's it. No qualifications given. And um, I think this is an example of, uh, of, of hyperbole. Okay, and and um, in other words, not you know, we, not all the qualifications are are given in hyperbole. So, for example, um, uh, the example I gave in in the sermon was when I when I told like if I tell my daughter, hey, sweetie, if you do well on your Latin test or whatever, I don't remember what the example was. We'll go eat wherever you want for supper. Whatever you want to eat for supper is yours. We'll go there. So that's the invitation of a loving father to a child. I don't give all the qualifications. So when I pick her up, I'm like, you did great. All right, what do you want to eat for supper? I want to drink Drano. We're like, hold on, you know. Drano will kill you. But, Daddy, you said whatever I wanted to eat. You're right, sweetie. Let's go get Drano. We'll go pump your stomach when you're done. Like, there's the qualifications. It's understood that that invitation is given within the realm of, of a loving father to his child. And, and I'll ask you follow up. Yeah, yeah. Are, are, are we using right there, are we doing what we just talked about, how we kind of have a creed in our church, that we're not mm-hmm. a charismatic word of faith, and so we automatically look for why it's I, I don't think so, and the, uh, unless you cut your hands off and gouge your eye out, too. <laughs> you seem to have both hands and both eyes. So, I... And, and so do the people in the Word of Faith movement. In other words, right. Jesus uses exaggeration and hyperbole all over the place. But the question is, do we have clear interpretive guidelines to decide, is it exaggeration or am I just excusing it? And so, um, actually, if you look on page 219, I have a chapter, and I'm drawing, I'm drawing you'll see in the footnotes, I'm drawing extensively on Robert Stein to give credit where credit is due. And there's a series of guidelines that are that are gone through, and I and I illustrate, um, um, you know, how you approach different texts and decide if they're legitimately exaggeration or not. Another thing that's helpful here is that even in the rabbinic Jewish background of here, I mean, the faith, faith to move mountains and mountain moving faith and all that, that that's an idiomatic expression. You know, and so Jesus is tying into a history of use of the use of mountains as an idiomatic way. In other words, Jesus is not saying, have any of you ever thought about starting an earth moving company? You don't need to buy 
uh, backhoes and bulldozers. You just believe and the dirt will move. You know, like he's not saying that. That's a that's an idiomatic expression to say the unbelievable will happen for you. One way we know that too is, is there's some places like First John is a great, great place to illustrate this. In one place, there's an invitation given, whatever you believe, you know, but then another says, ask accord, uh, according to his will. So there are places sometimes where the qualification is given according to his will. And there are other places where, where the qualification is not given. And you say, well, why didn't Jesus give all the qualifications? We're, we're such Pharisees. We're like, well, give me all the exceptions, right? And But Jesus is like, God is a loving Father. He wants to answer your prayer beyond anything you could imagine. And, and you're like, well, what if I ask for something sinful? Well, no, he won't give you something sinful. I've always wanted a lightsaber. That's just silly. He's not going to give you a lightsaber. You know, like we, we like think of all the things that we could ask for, right? Well, you know, and, and so, and there's the danger here, though. I found that students, you know, this is a very, the, understanding the, the nature of hyperbole and expression. Hyperbole is completely valid, honest way to communicate as long as both parties understand, you know? So if, I, if, I, if, I, if my daughter comes home and she says, Dad, I have a ton of homework. I understand that's just a normal expression of a, of a large amount. I'm not like, you are a lion again. I'm like, I'm going to weigh that backpack. That's number one, seven pounds. You know, like we don't, I don't, you know, or if I go to the bank and, and um, the teller says, you got $2 million in your account. I'd be like, what? Just exaggerating. You'd be like, hey, this is not a pro, this is, you know, that's only, only when it's an understood and Jesus teaching, he, he, he teaches in an avenue where it's clear that he uses that as a, as a mode of strong expression to... And, and, but the problem is, here's the problem, is that people, um, we hear this and then we hear the explanation and then we're, then, then we're like, oh yeah, so when we pray we don't get what we want and then we don't pray. Rather than hearing this as a huge, amazing invitation, like, you know, you know what God wants to do? You can't even believe what God wants to do through prayer. And like hear the weight of that, you know. And so Jesus uses hyperbole because hyperbole is used to communicate persuasively and intensively reality. You know, it's strong language. Um, and so we want to we convey that strength to that. Um, so does that help a little bit? It does. Uh, one, one more quick thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That, that will, we, we would describe that as parallel mania. Right? We talked about that. That's where picking up on one word where there's no clear, there's no clear illusion. You know, but, but what, what convinces me that that's an acted out parable against Israel is Mark's style of sandwiching. You know, that's all that, that he understands it that way and he's communicating that to us. So, um, yeah. Uh, especially about that. So, you know, so you've got the fig tree, the temple, yeah. and the fig tree, uh, and it's and, and I, I I completely agree with what you're saying about the act up. And then you have uh, the statement about the mountain, and then it seems no. like a diversion. Hmm. He switches gears and he starts talking about and and prayer and forgiveness. So it's like those are somewhat disconnected. Um, what do you make, uh, or, or how would you handle hmm. an emphasis that tries to hmm. uh, incorporate? Uh, very real historical events that we that, that we can recognize from scripture and also other literature 
Yeah. Let's do that day, for instance. Oh. Jesus in the mountain. He's not talking about mountains as a kind yeah. of hypothetical. Yeah. He's talking about the temple mount. Yeah. And he's foreshadowing yeah. Matthew 25. And, and you know where I'm headed with this. Kind of a well, full-blown preterism. Yeah. Uh, how, do you think yeah. there's value yeah. in trying to interpret those real historical things so that the actual words of Jesus have practical historical things and meanings? Or are we overreaching this? Yeah. I think that's I think that's overreaching. I think that um, you know, I've heard it this described. You know, of course, at this point, Jesus is over on the Mount of Olives, most likely, and and there is a there is a a mountain you can actually see towards the Dead Sea. That's Herodium, where where Herod basically moved part of the mountain. You know, uh, he cut off the top and and so on. And I heard someone else try to make it as a historical allusion to that mountain. Say Jesus is actually talking about the, the fortress of Herod that's visible here, Herodium. And he's, he's saying, you know, Herod moved that, but your faith can move. I don't think there's enough in Mark to see that. And I, I think there's not enough in Mark to prepare me to hear the temple referred to as this mountain. You know, and knowing the idiomatic nature of that expression, faith enough to move mountains found in rabbinic literature and elsewhere... It seems to me a pretty generic expression. Like I don't, I don't feel I'm not convinced. Uh, you know, when I see that, I, I just don't. I, it doesn't seem persuasive to me that it's a strong, the the specific choice of words and other things. I, I can't see it as referring to the temple there. Um, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that you've got some very practical realities. Yeah. 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 I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- in other words, yeah. Yeah. See, see, I think, I think that sometimes that can be driven by a devotional desire to protect the scriptures yeah. from what someone perceives as error. Yeah. So they're like, well, we know that we really don't get everything we pray for. <laughs> I prayed for grandma and she died, you know. That says, so it can't mean that, right? But rather than, rather than engaging the, the, real, the real interpretive question of you don't understand the nature of hyperbolic language, you know, and that this this is not saying, you know, you pray for an aircraft carrier, Jesus will give it to you. It's not it's not saying, you know, it, it's not saying that all that it 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 you know it, and and people see it, people understand it at one level. I mean, you're like everyone understands you don't cut your hand off, you don't gouge your eye out. So people understand hyperbolic language, but but I mean. We are a very scientific culture. We're a very precise culture. I'll meet you at 315. We meet at 315. You know, I'll do whatever. But, but the Semitic culture, if you've ever been, has anyone ever been to the Middle East? I mean, even to this day, it's a very, I mean, I've had people, I had people threaten to kill me in Israel because I was sharing the gospel. They weren't going to kill me. I mean, but they, like I was witnessing the Arab shopkeepers. If you come here again, I'll cut your throat. No, they weren't going to come cut my throat, but they were going to be like, I mean, we would be like, if you come here again, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to call the police or whatever. But that's the just die. You know, you throw, you just, there's just, you just express your emotion. You express the, you know, that so strongly. Um, 
Now, we understand this in romantic poetry, you know. Romantic poetry has these kind of expressions of, you know, we, we, we allow for that there. I think about you all day long. Your wife doesn't say, really? Like every, every literal second you think, well, no, I mean, just, you know, throughout the day. And, you know, so we, we allow for, we allow for, we just, we have to understand that. that. And I think if you look again, there are places where, where, where invitations to prayer are clearly qualified by the will of God. It's not, so we understand those qualifications are given, but they're not given in every place. You say, well, divorce is not allowed. But then there are qualifications given. We, we understand that. You know, so, um, but I do, th- I, I, I do think this is something that's, I don't remember if I told you guys this story, but I had, I had a guy call me once, and he was having some trouble understanding this hyperbolic language. And I thought, well, I'll choose an example he, he, can't, he can't deny. So I was like, well, what about, I was like, what about in Matthew 23? Jesus says, don't call anyone on earth father. I was like, surely you, you let your kids call you father, right? That's not a sin for them to call you father. He said, I never let them call me father. <laughs> I was like, are you serious? <laughs> I was like, well, you really want to obey the scriptures as you understand them. I said, I don't think that Jesus is really forbidding you to, call, forbidding you to have your children call you father. The point is to use hierarchical language to celebrate, to separate and have a priestly caste. To, set, to create a hierarchy within God's people. Now, this passage comes with great warning to me because I have a big academic robe with fancy, shiny stuff on it, and I, I get to walk around in it and sit in the best seat in chapel one, a few times a year. And whenever I do, I'm like, man, this is... I tell the students beforehand when we have, like, the big formal chapels, I'll say, I'll, I'll say, I love to walk around in the, in the chapel and be greeted with my long robe and have people call me rabbi, and then I'll be like, wait, that reminds me of a text somewhere that I've read. And they're all like, yeah. <laughs> so it's a, da- it's a dangerous thing. And people call you doctor, you know, which in my church, we're all on first name basis, you know, I, I, which I like personally. I like being, I just like being called Rob, you know, but, but Southern is a very formal culture. Uh, and it, but it's a scary thing when I read this text and you think about it. Are you, are you in danger of creating a hierarchy so, um, yeah, uh, but I do think that, that, in other words, I don't think anything, it's like I could go back to the guy and say, well, it's not wrong. You remember the Greek word is pater, so it's okay for him to call you father, just not pater. Oh, good. No, just kidding. No, so we under, we under, the English language didn't exist when that was written, so you're in good shape. You're in good, no, but we, yeah, people, I think, do struggle to under, understand that. But then there's the issue of like someone discovers that with hyperbole, like, oh, it's okay to actually be called rabbi or doctor, teacher. And then rather than say, rather than say, wait, where am I setting myself up above others in an unbiblical way? It's like, oh, I don't have to worry about that. You know, like where Jesus says, give to the one who asks of you. You're like, well, do I have to give a gun if a guy asks me for my gun? Well, no, you wouldn't give someone. Do I? Do, oh, okay. Well, then I really don't have to obey this. I'll just go on and not care about people. You know, it's like there's a danger of using hermeneutics to excuse your your disobedience. Hermeneutics can be used um, to excuse oneself from from the scriptures. Sadly. <laughs>